wherever this finds you. I am Emily Jane Fox. I am here with Joe Hagan. We are back inside the hive. Hey, Joe. Hi. It's great to be back with you inside the hive, the three of us. The three of us. It it is possible that this may be the last week where we have someone inside inside the hive, but I mean, who knows? Who's to say? In the uh, meantime, we're all very excited for you here at the hive. The Vanity Fair family awaits its new member, and you are still working uh, like you actually do the work of two people, it seems like, uh, on a week-to-week basis. You've got print stories you're writing, and today you've got three interviews here on The Hive. I just want to go out on a bang, you know? I want to give you guys as much of me as I could possibly give you so that you really miss me when I'm gone, though I won't be gone from <laughs> here for too long um, because I will miss miss all of you too much. Um, but in the spirit of talking about leave and how gone, yes. uh, long I will be gone, we have such a killer lineup today. I'm so excited. This week has been busy. I have done three interviews for this episode today because I couldn't help myself. They were just three incredibly interesting perspectives on a topic that touches everybody, whether you have children, whether you want to have children, whether you have elderly parents, whether you have someone who has been sick, uh, hopefully this won't happen to you, but, but someone who you do have to take care of in your life at some point, this is a topic that touches probably every household in America, and that is paid leave. Um, Of course, that includes maternity and paternity leave, but all sorts of kinds of leave that you could have to take in your life. And who better to talk about this than the three guests that we have interviewed today? It's a little bit of a different kind of episode because uh, there are three separate interviews that we are putting together, but uh, we wanted to get everyone's perspective. There's such leaders and experts in their fields and on this issue that it was worthwhile to do all three of them and hopefully hearing them back to back. They're, they're completely different perspectives, but all wildly smart and uh, engaging and important. So we have Jen Psaki, who is the press secretary for the White House and the Biden administration, talking all about uh, the administration's priorities and plans for paid leave and why they're focusing on what they're focusing on, how they're planning to push it through uh, obstinate Republicans who are standing in the way, uh, how they're planning to pay for it, and what President Biden thinks about the issue and how focused he is on it. And that was a fascinating conversation. Jen, of course, Mm. is a mother and she worked in the Obama administration as well. And in 2015 was one of the first people, if not the first person in the Obama administration to take advantage of the 12 weeks paid leave that the Obama administration put in place for the White House. She was in a very high powered role and still took the leave. And we talk all about that. Uh, We actually talk about that with all, all the guests today about Um, You know, when you are successful and you are incredibly privileged and lucky enough to get paid time off, it is sometimes hard to take it because you are worried about your job being left behind and people being Mm -hmm. left in the lurch and whatever it is. And all three of these people took all of their leave and said how important it was for them, for their families and, and for them as examples to show that you should, you should mark this moment in your life. The second interview we have is with Alexis Ohanian, who uh, founded Reddit and is married to Serena Williams. I don't know if you've ever heard that name before. 
I would imagine you have. Mm, not really a sports type, but I'm sure I'm sure she's famous. Rings a bell. Um, he admitted to me that he had never really thought about paid leave until he became a father a few years ago. And now it is something he is constantly thinking about. And he has fascinating uh, insights about what it's like as, as someone who runs a company, but as a dad. And we talk all about paternity leave and the stigma around it and all of the things that men don't usually talk about. Uh, you know, most men don't get paternity leave and the ones who do get it don't take all of it. And we talked about why that is and what that could look like in the future and some really interesting thoughts around that, which sort of cracked my brain open. And then we talked to Jen Hyman, who is a co-founder and CEO of Rent the Runway, a very big, successful company. And she has given all of her employees, whether they are working in corporate offices or warehouses or with customer service, uh, access to paid leave and those benefits. And we talked all about why that was from a moral perspective, but also why that was from a business perspective. And she says it just makes economic sense for her as a CEO to do that, which is sort of counter to what uh, most CEOs have been saying for ever and ever and ever. And these three perspectives are incredibly valuable. I hope they get a, a very important conversation started, continued, and I know that this will be something that is coming up in Washington a lot in the coming weeks and months as it should be, but let's, you know, start here and you and I, Joe, we'll, we'll talk about this until we're blue in the face because it is obviously a very personal issue, but it is an economic issue at the heart of it. And if we are going to be a competitive economy, we cannot be one of the only industrial countries that does not offer paid leave. It's crazy to me. Mm-hmm. And well, what you talked about with like continuity in one's career, it really is like a gender equity issue too. And it has been for, you know, it's really, when you think about it, um, the security and the guarantee that you'll be able to both have a baby and continue your career and, and, and have, you know, both tracks is important for people in all classes too, because, you know, there's, we're living in a world in which both parents are, are working just to keep their uh, economy going. So this seems absolutely necessary to me. And, um, you know, we've been hearing for years ever since I've, you know, ever since I've been alive, you know, talking about uh, equal pay, um, you know, the way which in which um, the glass ceilings and all the ways in which it is difficult for women to succeed and be mothers and, you know, in this last year during the pandemic, we read a lot of articles and experienced it firsthand that it was very difficult for mothers uh, and, and you know, parents generally, but um, especially women. And uh, because of just even down to the household level, there's inequities, right? And we have to, as you put it in previous episodes, structurally, you know, it's part of infrastructure. It's the way we're going to change and create the equity and equality we need to make it a better society and by the by a more successful one so i'm very interested in hearing um, what these fine guests have to say should we get to it let's go
We are going to start off our series of interviews with Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, who talks all about the administration's work on the issue, the priorities, and how they're going to pay for and pass everything through Congress. So paid leave, obviously, the conversation around it is nothing new. People have been talking around it, about it and trying to figure it out for decades and decades and decades. The impact is huge. It's an issue of competitiveness. It's an economic issue. It's a personal issue. And the U.S. is one of the only countries in the world that has not figured out how to guarantee paid leave to its citizens. So talk to me, Jen, about how this fits into the administration's agenda and what the plans are to push something forward. Well, first, I I agree with you completely that this is an issue that we've, I feel like we've been talking about for decades. Long before I had my first child, almost six years ago, we were talking about this issue. But I still feel like there isn't an understanding of why it's so important and, uh, and, and why we need to take action now. There isn't really time to wait. And, you know, even if you look at the, this period of time in our history, right? Where more than a million women have left the workforce, right? And we're trying to figure out how to get more women back into the workforce, how to make sure we have a more supportive work environment to ensure that we can have a diverse workforce, right? More women, more women proceeding, moving up the ladder, whatever that may be in whatever industry they there may be in. And if you look at the statistics, and I know you're very familiar with this, but for your listeners, it's pretty startling, you know? I mean, nearly one in four mothers return to work within two weeks of giving birth. Uh, you know, one in five retirees left or were forced to leave the workforce earlier than planned. Because some of this is certainly about paid leave for having a child, but also about paid leave for caregiving, whether that's self-care or care for loved ones. Uh, now, nearly um, four of five private sector workers have no access to paid leave. That's alarming, right? What do you do? And I remember, you know, I worked for a nonprofit uh, a wonderful one. When I had my son, my second child, I didn't have any maternity leave. This was three years ago, right? And what did you do? Uh, I uh, cobbled together some vacation and I worked from home uh, and uh, and I did the best I could. But I didn't have that time. I, I, I tried to make the time. And again, I was working for really an incredible, wonderful organization that does great things around the world. But I was told by the HR person at the time, oh, it's pretty standard. No, it's not, nor it should be. Uh, and so, and when I had my daughter, I was the White House communications director, kind of a non-traditional time to have a baby, but it's a <laughs> sidebar, but uh and at the time, to the credit of the then chief of staff, uh, Dennis McDonough and the president, they instituted 12 weeks of paid leave uh, for the White House. That wasn't the policy before that, and it's still not the policy in the federal government. So point is, I think we've, we've had a lot of talk about this and conversations about it and a lot of amazing advocates and celebrities who are saying we need paid leave. But I think it's important to dig into why, which is exactly what you're doing. So thank you. Why and kind of what, how behind we are in the world, but the impact this is having on women on an individual basis and on communities and frankly on industries as women are having to make the choice as the primary caregivers of what they do in these scenarios. So what is the economic impact of, of having women drop out of the workforce or 
if they have to stay in the workforce and can't take time off of work after a baby as one in four women um, we know can't do, what is the economic impact of it? How is that holding us back? And and I think that that speaks to, you know, why it's, if some people are confused about why this conversation is sort of tied in with infrastructure spending and, and on the administration's focus on building back the economy better, just explain to people who may not be as familiar with it what this all means for our economy. Well, first, on a fundamental level, the economy, the American workforce is going to be better when there are more women at the table. And we've worked very hard over the last several decades to make that the case. Uh, There's countless studies that show that. And, you know, women still are the primary caregivers. There are a lot of there's a lot of studies and data on this in terms of what the impact will be or what the impact can be. There's an interesting survey um, of California employers um, after the implementation of their paid leave law um, that found that, you know, a majority of businesses, actually 87 percent, experienced no increased costs related to the program. And some businesses even reported cost savings. And why is that? And that's important because I think the assumption is that maybe we should do this for moral reasons, but it could have a negative impact. That just doesn't really play out. That is true for a range of reasons, including worker retention, uh, right? Mm-hmm. The elevation of employees and uh, as, as they are continuing to know their skill set, know their industry and proceed uh, and, and rise through the industries, uh, reducing the rate of turnover, uh, which reduces the, the cost to employers to find and train new employees, uh, even employee morale, knowing that you can rely on that leave for whatever the reason is, maybe it's a new baby, maybe it's taking care of a parent, uh, has a huge mental benefit and therefore a financial uh, benefit. And so, you know, the, the argument um, uh, that that some make that this is just not something that people can afford, one, I mean, the president's proposing uh, a, an investment to make this possible, right, A. But two, it's something that over the long term, we also think it can help the competitiveness of our workforce um, and, the, and the worker retention at a lot of uh, companies and industries as well. Sure. I, one of the things that, that struck me, I was reading through uh, your fact sheet um, as I was preparing to talk to you. And one number that's really stuck out to me was that 91% of the income gains experienced by middle-class families over the last 40 years were driven by women's earnings. And if you have millions of women just over the last year dropping out of the workforce during COVID-19 to take care of their families, and 91% of the earnings experienced by middle-class families over the last 40 years have been driven by women. What an incredible loss to the economy by not investing in these kind of policies, right? That's absolutely true and such a good statistic. Thank you for reading our fact sheet, A, I'll just say. Um, But, (laughs) you know, I I think it also has an impact on, you know, there, there are also interesting statistics about the number of families where the primary breadwinner is now the one, the woman in mm. the family. That is also a rising number. Um, so it impacts individual families as well, and and therefore communities. And you know that is a that is a big financial impact on on families and communities. But also, you know, there's an aspect of this that is um, not just about jobs, but about how you ensure that. Um, you know, people, women are continuing to proceed in, in industries, right? And it sends a, it sends a very strong message to women who are thinking about pursuing a law degree or a PhD, um, or a lot of the, even these further education 
opportunities as to whether that's worth doing, right? Can they have a law degree and be a lawyer and have paid leave? Now, maybe that's not the best example because a lot of law firms are kind of in the bigger industry area where they may have paid leave. But is it beneficial to get that PhD if you're not sure what that's going to look like? If it's a requiring mm. part of federal law that you can have this paid leave, uh, you know, maybe that will incentivize even that, the further education and even increasing the number of women who are pursuing those advanced degrees. That's fascinating. You mentioned what the president is proposing in order to have these kinds of policies in place. Can you walk me through what the administration is putting out there? So what the president's proposing is uh, guaranteeing uh, 12 weeks of paid parental, family, uh, and personal illness or safe leave uh, by year 10 of the program. It will take, point is, you can't do this immediately in his view. It will take some time to implement, but it is something that he wants people to know that they can rely on over time. It also would ensure uh, workers get three days of bereavement leave per year uh, starting in year one. So there's a certain phase in about it. Um, it provides workers up to $4,000 a month uh, with a minimum of two-thirds of average weekly wages replaced, rising to uh, 80% for the lowest wage workers. Uh, so there's a number of components. Again, there'd be a phase-in over time. But as you noted in the beginning of our conversation, you know, we've been talking about this for decades. Um, even a phase-in of this and an assurance to women who are in middle school, high school, even college today, that this is something that they can rely on as they look to a stage in their life where they might be more likely to be caring for children or even caring for parents uh, is something that would really help um, our workforce over time. Speaking of, of workforce, one of the things I also found in your fact sheet that just really jumped out at me, and I think it's just indicative of how deep the understanding of the issue is, is that there is a focus on providing universal high quality preschool to all three and four-year-olds as part of this plan. And and in addition, investing in early childcare providers and educators. These are some of, you know, it is a, a, a group of people that doesn't get talked about a lot. And the fact that you guys are focusing on it really stuck out to me. It, these are some of the most underpaid workers in the country. Half of them are on public income support. Um, and I think that the way you're proposing is to raise their minimum wage to $15 an hour and to provide training to them. And those two things are very nuanced uh, additions that the early child care access and also the the wages to these child care providers. And it's just a it's a level of understanding of how deep this problem is. And uh, I'm wondering how this came to be and uh, what part of the the plan this will will play as you guys roll out the program? Sure. Well, one of let me just say first, there are so many women and women with children in this White House. Uh, obviously, this is something the president wants to do, but um, it is uh, it is ever present here. I mean, six of the seven uh, women who are leading components of the communications team have little kids. Um, so it's a part of how we discuss the challenges the American workforce is facing. It's present at the table, um, that these childcare challenges and, uh, the needs, uh, for people to have access to universal pre-K. One of the, the pieces, just to go back to our fact sheet, now people will be excited about the fact sheet. I love that. Um, the statistics are so amazing um, when you learn, or I, this is a statistic that stuck with me, I guess I should say. 
that kids who go to pre-K as opposed to even daycare are more than 50% more likely to go to graduate from high school. I mean, that's amazing, right? So why wouldn't we be investing? And that is really about how we're preparing the workforce, but we're also giving people who need a leg up a leg up at a very early age. So that is a big driver of the thinking there. In terms of the investment in childcare providers, I mean, I, I do. Know, there's a lot of takeaways that I know everybody has from the pandemic. There'll be many books written, but one of them is just the incredible value and gift uh, that teachers are and childcare providers are. I think many it, it has been humbling. <laughs> I think for many of us working parents to recognize um, something we already knew, but it's been emphasized even more that that childcare providers, preschool teachers, teachers, they are a gift to society and to families and to working parents. And they are they should be supported. They should have the money they need to be trained. They should be incentivized to play a role in an industry that is so important to our children. I mean, there's almost nothing that's more important, um, you know, uh, to to kind of raising the next generation. The other piece that is incorporated into the plan, I think that hopefully shows a recognition of the, the scope of the challenges people are facing is wraparound care, right? So if somebody has access to universal pre-K for their three-year-olds or their four-year-olds, they may need additional childcare because uh, they may work shifts, right? Or they may have different work hours because of whatever industry or job or field they may be in. And we want to uh, plan for that and factor that in uh, so that uh, so that that can be a part of um, how we take care of uh, the workforce and ensure that, you know, women especially can participate in it. That makes total sense. But you brought something up that I, I want to circle back to. So there are so many women working in this White House and so many women with children working in this White House. And you mentioned the fact that when you were pregnant and working in the Obama White House, that you were one of the first people to be able to take advantage of that 12-week paid leave. And it's such a gift. And it's something I'm incredibly fortunate that my company supports me taking leave and that the leave is substantial. And it's truly one of the luckiest things I uh, get to experience in my job. There are two issues when I think about paid leave as someone who is very privileged in this. And, And part of it is how much leave you get and that we are part of the privileged few to get paid leave. And the other part is if you do get paid leave, how much do you take in order to not set you back in your career? And I think that that's another part of this where if you are a successful, hardworking person and you do get paid leave, there is sort of a stigma about taking that full leave and what that will mean for you and uh, you in comparison to your male colleagues who either don't get as much leave as you or don't get any leave or uh, aren't the person who is bearing a child, who is birthing a child, and then expected to take care of the child. So as someone who's probably thought about this, I'm curious what you think about how you, as a woman, take the leave if you are given the leave. Take all of it. (laughs) My advice is pretty simple. (laughs) One, on a human level, and I know you're about to have a baby, which is amazing. Congratulations. Um, You never get this time back. Uh, And the beginning is really hard um, and challenging and exhausting and uh, but so important for bonding with your child and just having that time and taking a breath to recognize the moment you're in. Um, Take every moment. 
So that's important, but it's also important to send the message to other women who are working. Maybe they're your colleagues. Maybe they're people who work for you that they should take the leave too. Uh, and I remember early on um, when I took, uh, when I was about to have my daughter, there were also a number of, of dads who were preparing to have kids. And I remember Jason Furman, I think it was him. So hopefully if he listens to this, he won't. I think this was him. He said, <laughs> he said, I'm, of course, taking all of the paid leave for men because he also wanted to send the same message to his colleagues that that was an important step for dads to take. And there's an important uh, role for dads here as well who have access sure. to paid leave. And again, it is privileged. It's not as common as it should be. Um, but I think for women and men who are offered that paid leave, you know, talking about how how they should take it, their employees should take it. Let's reduce the stigma of it, right? Having children mm -hmm. is a part of, for should people choose something people should choose um, and uh, have the ability to do. So I do remember when I came back from having my daughter, I was gone for uh, 12 weeks because I took the full leave. And I think I was in some briefing with then President Obama and he was like, oh, you're back already, <laughs> right? Which is just a reminder the world goes on, right? And totally. That was easy for me maybe to feel in that moment. It's not always as easy, I realize, uh, depending on where you are in the in, in an organization, but but you never get that time back. Um, and I would say my my advice would be to take every moment. That is very good to hear. And I think I think that you're right in that um the more people who talk about this and take this and normalize this, the better it is for everybody. So all of these policies cost money. I believe that the American Families Plan includes $1.8 trillion in investments and in tax credits, which we haven't talked about. We can talk about a little bit now over the course of 10 years. So it's not all up front, but that's a lot of money. How are we going to pay for this? Well, it is, but also we can pay for it and we have a range of ways to do it. And so what the president's proposed on this is uh, a couple of things, um, raising uh, the corporate rate, having it go back to the rate that it was uh, back in the first year of the uh, George W. Bush presidency, uh, that would impact. There's a lot of companies out there we know by data um, in the top, uh, you know, some of the top earning companies that didn't pay any taxes at all. They should pay some taxes and we think they can afford it. That's how we can help ensure we are preparing uh, our next generation of workers He's also proposed raising the individual tax rate, uh, something that would impact about 1% of Americans. He has a bottom line that nobody making less than $400,000 a year will have their taxes to go up a single cent. Uh, he, he will not budge from that. He's unmovable on that front. But there's a lot of ways, you know, uh, raising the corporate rate is something we should do anyway. It should it, We should make the tax code more fair. Uh, and his view is that um, these investments, uh, making sure we have access, kids have access to universal pre-K, uh, we're providing uh, support and funding so that people can go pursue uh, two-year community college degrees, uh, extending the child tax credit. I know something we can certainly talk about, that those are things we should do that because they're good for our economy, good for our workforce, good for the country. And there are people who can afford to pay a little bit more to, to cover it. Sure. I have to ask this. Because Republicans have shown very little willingness to give on the physical infrastructure side. I think their proposal was very significantly less than uh, what the administration and Democrats on the Hill propose. So how do you get 
support amongst Republicans to give on the care infrastructure side of this if they have been unwilling to spend on, on infrastructure spending in general? I mean, first, uh, you know, what we're looking at right now, which we're still need to dig into more details on, is is about a $1 trillion infrastructure proposal, which do- has doubled in size since from what was proposed by Republicans just two weeks ago. So that's, that's mm-hmm. movement in the right direction. Uh, but there is a process that has already started, a budget reconciliation process um, that is moving forward um, in in the Senate, even as we're continuing to negotiate uh, with Republicans on the infrastructure package. You know, the politics of this are, are hard to wrap your head around because investing in areas like caregiving or universal pre-K, they're actually quite popular with the public. You know, mm. no one is like, I'm a registered this party, so I don't think my kids should go to universal pre-K. That's like not how the public works, right? It's hard to argue against that. Yes. Right, nor should it. And so, um, you know, I think we'll have to see. You know, we're going to continue to pursue bipartisanship and the the politics of it are a little wacky and confusing because why, you know, a lot of the proposals the president has put forward are wildly popular with Democrats, of course, but independents and many of them are very popular with Republicans because you know what? People don't look at things through the political prism of the, you know, fights that are within the zip code of Washington, D.C. So we'll continue. But but the reconciliation process is one where, um, you know, it's an opportunity to move things forward. Um, and uh, if Democrats stand stand together and are, are open to moving it forward, then it can move forward through that mechanism. But it can also get Republican votes even at the last moment. Well, here's hoping. I, I have fingers crossed for that. I know you have many fish to fry today, many things to do, so I won't take up more of your time. But I just am so grateful for you talking about this, for you pushing this through, for your voice on this. And I just am so, so happy that we got to sit down and and discuss. Thank you for your time and for elevating this. Um, And I am just so excited for you to become a mom. It's the best thing that's ever happened. Um, My daughter is a magical unicorn and I'm sure yours will be too. I hope so. And I hope, my hope is that she does not have to have this kind of conversation when she is my age and she's thinking about having her own children, that this is something that the administration can pass. And by the time she is 10 years old, it will be in place and and we don't have to have this conversation. Here is to hoping. I hope that is the case for her as well. Next, we are going to talk with Alexis Ohanian, who is a co-founder of Reddit and an entrepreneur. He's also married to Serena Williams and a father to their beautiful daughter, Olympia. He has been writing and talking about paid leave and paternity leave and fathers in general in such a smart way. I can't wait for you to hear this interview. Thank you so much for coming on today. I have so much I want to talk to you about. I want to start at sort of the beginning here. I'm curious... Uh, I've seen you write about this before, but before you became a father, how often did you think about paid leave? Emily, I barely thought about it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, at this point had been managing, you know, hundreds of people and had really only thought about it in the context of a conversation with our head of people and culture at Reddit, a woman named uh, Caitlin Holloway. And when she joined us, I think this was like 2015, uh, she had brought a pretty comprehensive plan for just essentially modern best practices for people and culture. And that included a pretty extensive 
uh, set of, of perks that had come to be pretty normal in Silicon Valley for top talent. And that included uh, 16 weeks of paid family leave. Mm. And, and I really was, I, I was, I was, I think definitely not married at the time uh, and definitely didn't have a kid at the time, but I understood that this was an important thing in order to get the best people working at our firm. And that's about it. And, and uh, perfectly honest with you, I hadn't really given it much thought beyond that. Sure. Well, I think that that is definitely a, a privilege that, that many executives have. It's a privilege that a lot of men have. And mm-hmm. so when you did start thinking about it, when your wife, and I think everyone knows and loves and is obsessed with and is in awe <laughs> of your wife, uh, mm-hmm. when, when you guys did get pregnant, I would imagine that's probably the first time it became on your radar. So walk me through what happened there and how your thinking evolved. Well, we found out where we were going to be parents. And maybe about halfway through the pregnancy, I sat down uh, again with one of my, it was one of my one-on-ones with Caitlin. And and I told her, look, I, I want to take full advantage of our paid leave plan. I want to role model this, not just for men in the organization, but for men all over tech, all over business. Uh, I know a lot of people are going to be watching and I want to show them that you could be, you know, a super ambitious tech executive or just executive in America and feel a need to take full advantage of your paid family leave, assuming you're lucky enough to get access to it. Right. And, and I said, look, treat me like any other employee. I want to just talk to someone and build the plan and, and go through the process. And even that was eye-opening because one of the first conversations I had with one of the folks on her team was about building a calendar and, and a rough leave plan that uh, allowed me to use these 16 weeks flexibly. And even that was something I'd never even conceived of. I just thought, oh, right, you go on leave and then you're off it and you're back to work. And mm. Something she had pointed out was that, especially for men, I wasn't going to be carrying this child. I wasn't going to be giving birth to this child. I had I wasn't going to be sustaining this child. Um, I had a lot more flexibility in my sort of comings and goings. And one of the things that they found especially helpful for getting men to take this time was, was being able to have flexibility when you're working, when you're not, mm. so that you can build a plan that makes sense for your family. So that if you have a partner who wants to, you know, after, after using, say, the first, it's called 10 weeks off, uh, using the last six weeks of your time by just taking off every Friday, because let's say your partner wants to, you know, flex back into their own career on, on those Fridays. And so it helps your family out for you to be off for that long weekend. And it turns out, you know, the rest of your team back at work they get you four days a week. They don't miss you mm. uh, that fifth day. And it actually works out really well for, for folks at work and at home. And even something as simple as that flexibility was eye-opening. And so this all led to Serena giving birth to our daughter, Olympia. It was a very complicated uh, and difficult childbirth. She almost died. This is, this is pretty well publicized now. But, you know, it was a traumatic experience. And, and we had every advantage imaginable. And yet... You know, I was there in that hospital room and nothing could have pulled me away. And and at some point, my mind drifted to the idea that there were people uh, out there who had to make that decision between their family and their job because they didn't have access to any leave whatsoever. They didn't have all the resources we had. And, and I realized then, given all the comforts that I had 
and our family had access to, and we were still feeling that vulnerable in that circumstance, there was no way I would be okay with any American going through it without knowing just the fundamental truth that they would have some time to spend with their family. And, and, you know, during this process now, the last four years almost of fighting for nationwide paid family leave, I've met fathers. I went to DC with fathers. Um, this is two years ago now to campaign. We were we were able to get twelve weeks of of paid family leave for federal employees. Um, when we were campaigning for that, I was meeting with fathers and brought with me fathers who were in that very position, who had to decide between being there with their partner, who was you know still in a hospital bed, with their child, who in some cases were like in a, an intensive unit in a NICU, and and their boss who was telling them they needed to get back to work. And those stories felt, and and I think to most Americans, feel like a tragedy, especially in a nation that claims to care so much about families and how important families are. And so that's, I think that's one of the reasons why I've seen this get so much momentum in the last few years, is, is more and more men are speaking up about this issue. And not just, not just the privileged few like me, uh, but more and more men showing that this is important to them uh, and it's important to their health of their partners, health of their well, health and well-being of their children. And, and I think ultimately better for business, better for our economy. And uh, I've, I've learned a lot ever since being in that hospital room four years ago. It's so fascinating, everything you're saying. And, and I think I want to get back to the, the flexible way in which people could end up taking leave because I think that's so fascinating and something that hasn't gotten as much attention, but I think that that is mm. such a revolutionary way forward here. But you said something that I want to stop on, and it was that uh, when you were initially conceiving of, of taking leave, that it was really important for you as someone who was so highly visible to sort of set an example. And I'm wondering if, you're, if your work since then, if this has come up amongst other male executives, leaders, CEOs in conversations you've had with them, because so much much of this does start from the top. You guys have all of the power and control and the ability to say, I'm taking this leave and there won't be necessarily retribution or there won't be a stigma placed or there won't be someone who doesn't then invite you to the company retreat or whatever it is because it's your company. So I think so so much of this does start from the top. And I'm, I'm just curious what your conversations amongst other people at the tops of their companies or, or leaderships, if, if you guys have had these kind of conversations. I wish I could tell you there was a lot more empathy, uh, but I'd be lying. Mm-hmm. Th- there are still a lot of male execs, I'll speak to tech in particular, who don't fully understand. Now, it wouldn't surprise you <laughs> that almost all of them don't have children, but uh, but even a couple do. And, and I think we still have so much of our culture wrapped up in these tropes. And it's, it's funny because tech is also an industry. You'll hear this phrase a lot of, of first principles thinking. And, and it's an industry that prides itself on being willing to be contrarian and right and be willing to really think about a problem from its core fundamentals. Keep asking the question why until you get to this essence of a problem. And yet remains in a lot of ways really hung up on pretty irrational thinking on this. And and I think it comes back to a fear or a concern or an insecurity around work. And one of the things that I really hope, even for for men with tremendous power and and whatnot, 
it, it is a deep-rooted insecurity around masculinity and work. And look, we all we all have our baggage. I think what it takes, though, is enough men to be confident enough to say that this is important, and and especially the men who have the authority and the privilege to do so, to say, no, 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 this is really important to me. And there's more and more data now showing the health benefits, the financial benefits. Like as an employer, I go out of my way now to tell I've had multiple male employees that I have told like very explicitly, you really, 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 really got to take this, like find a way to take this and flexibility again helps here. Mm. Right. And to give them as much air cover and confidence as I can so that they know there's no retribution for this. And I still think it's going to take time because even when we get this to be accessible, like a, a federal paid leave policy for every American, we're still going to have to do a lot of work to get men to feel confident enough uh, to take it. And and I think it just comes from having more and more conversations about this. You see guys in the popular culture, Chance the Rapper, I think he curtailed one of his tours for mm-hmm. his second child's birth. He was very public about it. He said, look, this is a really important time for my family. I don't want to be away. The tour is a grind. And I hope you all understand I want to be with my wife and our kids. And there was even a picture in the World Series uh, for the Nats who missed a game. He was supposed to, I think, start or at least play in um, for the birth of a child. And again, it just resuscitated this idea of, oh yeah, like this actually really matters to people. This is an important thing for men to do because, I mean, look, let's be real. Our jobs are not going to be there at our funeral. And, and our careers have a very, very important role in defining who we are. And I say this as someone who loves, I love the work I do. I want to be the best at the work that I do. I also know that the few and, and closest relationships that I have, my family is, is at the end of the day, they're the ones, they're the ones showing up at the funeral, I hope. Well, TBD, and hopefully there's a long ways to go for there. But the investment that we can make in our families, especially at such a pivotal time when we're welcoming a new member, is so worth it. That return on investment is so, so, so massive. And I think it's just going to take more and more men saying, hey, this matters. And and not just to be there for the day. My dad, to his credit, you know, he took a vacation day. It was a sick day. One day when I was born back in 83. Because the culture was very mired in an idea that, yeah, you, if everything's cool, you go home uh, or you go back to work. And thank God everything was okay, right? But again, how many how many dads were there uh, spending the night in the hospital wondering, Jesus, do I go to work the next morning or do I stay here with my wife and newborn? It wasn't even, I would imagine it wasn't even a question that most people were asking for, for well, much of the last, you know, history of time. Think about that. Like any, I... I I feel comfortable making the generalization that any, just about any human being would have some moments of trauma having to decide between those two. And yet, yeah, the overwhelming, not even choice, the overwhelming result was, yeah, I got to go back, go back to work. And, and I think the, the other area where we've had a lot of success in this movement is having people learn that one in four moms in the U.S. are back to work 10 days Mm. after childbirth, that alone should stop every American in their tracks. It's When I think about that, it is is crippling to me, just the thought of it. It is. It is literally, when you consider 
right? The number of women who have a birth via C-section, right? The idea of anyone going back to work 10 days after childbirth, naturally or not, is, is, is a jarring thing. But then when you especially consider, you know, how many women ultimately have surgeries and, and all kinds of other complications, like it's, it is shocking. It is absolutely shocking to think that it is the norm. And, and again, in a, in a society that prides itself on the value of the family and, and is, I would hope thinking rationally about how we support these families, both for their health and their well-being, as well as our economy. Um, we don't want people going back to work 10 days after giving birth. We don't want that. That's not good for anyone. It's not good. I like the, the strongest argument I make to other execs, male execs, who are hung up on the idea of offering paid family leave to both men and women at their firm is like, there is no way that dude coming into work is doing anything close to his best work unless his castle, unless the home life is, is solid like on solid footing. And there is, <laughs> there are a few things more jarring than, than bringing in a new child. Even if all, everything goes perfectly, <laughs> there are still a few things more jarring than that. And, and we need to get real with ourselves about how, and I, and I hope COVID also illuminated this, the, the myth of work and life being separate things. We don't turn off a switch when we stop working and then we're full-time living now. These things bleed into one another all the time. And COVID proved to everyone, especially when we were all quarantined, that this is it's all on the same spectrum. And, and it's ridiculous to think that there is any distinction. And so there's a there's a great argument to make that you want your workers to have the peace of mind and stability to be able to do their best work. And they're only going to get it if they know they have this flexible time to be with their families as their families need it. And look, if you're on your fourth kid and you're like, ah, this is fine. We got this. We, I'm, I'm good. Um, I still challenge those parents to find ways to take advantage of this in a way that suits your family's needs. I have a feeling that if you have that conversation with your partner and you're like, hey, so I've got these you know, N weeks, let's say 12 is what we're pushing for at the federal level, uh, they will find ways to use that in order to better support their load. And, and I think you all end up being better off. But I, I just want everyone to have that opportunity. And we're, we're, we're still a ways from it, but we're getting there soon. That is so rational and logical when you lay it out like this. And I would imagine it's so effective when you explain this to other people. And and the last thing I want to ask you is, I, I know that you have explained this uh, when you've gone to talk to lawmakers and you've gone down to Washington. What do you think the relationship should be with the private sector and the public sector in making these changes effective and real and able to trickle down to all segments of the population, all families in this country. I think that there has to be some sort of collaboration. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on how that would look in practice. Well, certainly as an employer who has the resources to offer this, I'm happy to. And, and, and I'm, I'm actually, this is one area where I will give tech as an industry some flowers because the tech industry does have across the board. I mean, almost all of the, the major companies have pretty generous paid leave policies, again, by U.S. standards. And, and I think that helps to drive a normalization of it because as the economy and, and actors in it realize tech is such a big, big, big part 
heart of everything. Um, every business is realizing they have to be a tech business. As a result, they need to have tech workers at their businesses. There is no way a tech worker is leaving great perks in a great city to go like, I don't know, live somewhere else for some random CPG company that's trying to figure out how to be a technology business, unless they also get great compensation that was just as good as what they had before. And talent, you'll, you'll see, is, is already starting to spread into other industries. And as that talent takes with the expectations of paid leave, I think you're seeing more and more paid family leave policies, even on a target expanding um, employee benefits for paid leave. Um, you're seeing more and more employers thinking, okay, parental leave matters. We need to have this and, and let's lead the way. And I, I think we've seen states show their own paid leave programs, uh, Jersey, Rhode Island, New Jersey, of course, uh, Rhode Island, New York, California. Uh, they have shown ways to implement their own types of policies around this. Uh, they've shown that they've been positive on things like productivity and morale and, and health and well-being. So like we've had experiments at the state level. We've had the federally funded program for federal workers for now a couple of years. And, and I think it's all converging now with um, hopefully this year where, where we're going to see a federal paid leave program because we have enough you know, it's we we've got enough proof points now, enough momentum now, that we can get what the country really needs, which is the opportunity for every worker, which is a chance for small businesses that you know don't necessarily have the resources off the bat to provide it. Um, small businesses now get the advantage of having it, so to speak, um, because it would be provided at the federal level, and and that also obviously frees up more dollars for us to be investing more in our workers and innovation and all the other things that make the economy work. And and it, and you did bring up an important issue, which is and the only way this really works is not just for wealthy families like mine to have access to it, but for all families. And we know there is already, you know, a massive gap in the the healthcare of uh, especially people of color and, and, you know, the black maternal health crisis is a very well documented one and one that that needs its own intervention. But but for now, here is an opportunity to bring paid leave to every family in this country across all lines uh, and, and I think actually make a huge, huge difference. This has been so illuminating. And I, it's a conversation that I'm obviously having in my own personal household a lot. And I know that uh, it's a conversation that's happening in households all across the country. And I'm just really grateful for you having it out loud. And uh, hopefully your voice continues to echo and spread. And I just appreciate your time and your thought and your, your brains on this. Thanks, Emily. I'll tell you, this is the easiest thing I have had to advocate for. From a policy standpoint, it feels it is a blessing to be able to fight for this because it is so important. I'm not trivializing it at all, but every American has some connection to some part of this story. And, and, and I think even a few years ago, Really, the only debate point was around how to fund it, and and that was heartening. Even at a time when this country is is more polarized than ever, this does feel like something that can bridge together left and right, um, because every American believes in the strength of the family, and every American sees the value of having paid leave for for both parents, and as well as in the case of adoption, as well as you know changing a culture that historically has 
you know, had, had up this weird facade of a work life and a home life. And, and especially for men created this illusion of, you know, uh, a, a weird, a weird split of responsibility. And, and maybe, maybe this is one of the silver linings from COVID because every one of us who, who has children was exposed to the load of being a parent slash teacher slash nanny slash uh, all the things. And I really hope that it pushes forward this shift, which has been making good progress, really just pushes it forward because I know at the end of the day, even those reluctant male CEOs who still don't quite understand, hopefully they're hearing it from enough other men and women in the industry who are saying, look, this this is going to make a huge difference. And this is going to be a reason why great companies are going to continue to be great uh, because they're supporting employees in the ways that a modern worker wants to be supported. And that's that's what we can get done here. And, and it's going to mean lower healthcare costs uh, because it's going to mean healthier babies and healthier moms. Uh, and I, I really do believe it's going to mean better outcomes for families and businesses alike. And that's, that's a lot to get excited about. It excites me. And I am I am hopeful along with you. And, and your voice is really doing a lot to get there. So thank you. And thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, for sure. Thanks, Emily. We're going to round this out with an interview with Jennifer Hyman, who is a co-founder and the CEO of Rent the Runway. She has incredibly progressive policies around paid leave, and I can't wait for you to hear what she's doing, thinking, and how this makes economic sense for employers to do across the country. So Rent the Runway started giving the benefits that it normally would give to corporate employees a few years ago to all hourly employees, including people who worked in the warehouse, customer service, stores, all of these employees got access then to leave time when they had a new baby or if there was a bereavement or if someone sick in the family. How did you make those numbers work as someone who was running the company? I think when people have traditionally thought about benefits, they've thought about benefits in terms of an HR cost on their P&L that they have to manage every year. And one of the things that I started thinking about is what is the total kind of costs associated with an employee? And some of those costs that are much larger than benefit costs include the cost to acquire a new employee mm. and train them and to ensure that they have, you know, steady state productivity, meaning that when you bring on a new employee, they're not as productive, whether they're a software engineer or they're an hourly warehouse employee mm. than they are when they're six months, 12 months, three years into the job. And in fact, it's the tenured employees who have the highest productivity. They often are training new employees. They're the ones that find ways to improve the organization. So I started thinking about the fact of like, why is it that there is higher turnover amongst hourly employees? And we really, by nature of having kind of qualitative conversations with our hourly employees, learned that some of it was due to life circumstances, like 
having a child, caring for a family member who was having a child, caring for a family member was that was sick, that it was it was due to lack of of benefits that people were leaving. They weren't leaving Rent the Runway because they didn't want to work at the company, but there were, um, you know, benefits that corporate employees have gotten for many decades at companies like ours that hourly employees have gotten a different class of benefits. And by nature of kind of equalizing benefits, it wasn't just the right choice from a moral perspective, but it dramatically increased employee tenure at our company, which means that there's lower costs of acquisition of new employees, lower recruiting, lower training costs, higher productivity, higher customer, and it's not higher customer satisfaction because higher employee satisfaction. You know, the employees feel safe. And that has, you know, had positive impacts on our bottom line. What are those positive impacts? Well, Increased employee tenure um, lead to higher productivity, meaning a better customer experience that we're able to deliver, lower cost of fulfillment, lower cost of service. Sure. So, you know, I think that benefits need to be, of course, offering equalized benefits to all of my employees was an expensive decision on one hand, but if you're looking at it holistically, it made financial sense Mm. and it actually helped the company save money and offer a better experience over time. Well, it's definitely a longer term investment in, in your employees and in turn the company. And I, in my early days as a reporter, I covered retail. It was mostly big box retail. And this was something that used to come up time and time again in my reporting. It was the era of, of the beginning of the sort of new minimum wage fight. And, um, I remember I was very close to covering Walmart, which is obviously a very different business model than your business model. But the, the issue of worker retention was huge. And the fact that they weren't paying their workers and weren't giving people benefits and weren't making them full-time employees was something that came up over and over again. Obviously it has worked for your company to make this sort of investment and it's worked for your employees and the logic behind it makes such sense to me. I'm wondering how feasible this is for other companies to, follow your lead. You have, you have taken a a major step that is such a great example and it's working. Is this something that's replicable for people who don't have your exact business model? I think that if the cost of benefits was actually put against the cost of new employee acquisition and new employee training, that this would make financial sense at thousands of different companies. Mm. And the reality is that we are already distinguishing between someone's relative importance to a company based on their salary. As the CEO, I'm more important to Rent the Runway's success than one of my customer service agents, and therefore I get a higher salary. Mm. However, having differentiated benefits basically means that we are saying that my life is more important than an hourly employee's life, that Mm. my family is more important, that my child is more important, that my mother's 
illness is more important. And that's really wrong. We, we've basically, like what I realized in 2018 before changing this policy and equalizing our benefits was that we had inadvertently created different classes of employees and that that was not only, you know, morally incomprehensible to me, but it also didn't make sense financially because there were these massive hidden costs for doing that. You know, think about like the strain of someone in your family getting sick or someone in your family passing away from a finan- the financial strain of that. That financial strain is going to be felt much more deeply to those who have lower salaries. So the very people who need the benefits the most in order to have continuity of employment are the ones that we often deny those privileges to. You know, our our system should actually be the opposite of what it is. As, As the CEO, where I have a higher salary, if I had to take unpaid time off for someone in my family being sick, I would be able to do it. Mm. And often as a corporate employee at any organization, you're given some grace in those kinds of situations. You're not punching a time clock. So to give my hourly employees not only that same grace, but to pay them for that time so that they could have continuity of their jobs, they could understand there's a safety net at Rent the Runway, and therefore they could you know, be a full human being. They're, they're able to take care of various, you know, things going on in their life, both, you know, positive and negative, that they're still going to have a job. It's so incredible to hear you say this because there are not a lot of leaders of of very successful companies who are talking this compassionately about their workers, uh, but also in a way that feels completely sound from a business perspective. And it's such a a breath of fresh fresh air to hear. And as you talk about uh, putting yourself in the shoes of people who work for and with you, it makes me think of of all the stuff that I read when you were getting ready to take maternity leave. And I know that um, you guys reached the elusive unicorn status when you were nine months pregnant. Is that right? Yes. Which as someone who is nine months pregnant, I can't even imagine the range of emotions and excitement and stress and pressure that go along with all of that at the same time. But you're you're reaching such a level of success at a time when you are then going to go on leave. And I'm just curious how you, as someone who is leading such a massive, successful company, take the time to actually, you know, take time off of work. And I'm sure there's also an added pressure of being um, sort of a a leader and an example of, well, if I I don't take this time, how is anyone going to feel comfortable taking time at my company? And I just, I'm curious about the, the mental math that you do when you're running a company and leading a lot of women who work for you and also on the cutting edge of all these leave policies. So I have two children right now and have taken four months of parental leave when each of my daughters was born. And I felt that that was critically important for me to 
set the tone at the top that Rent the Runway was going to be a place that you could have a big career, but you could also have a big life. And that your relationship with your family and with your kids is extremely important and you're never going to get that time back. So kind of carpe diem. But in order to prepare for that, I think I did what all leaders do, which is build a great team around me, trust that team, understand that that team has complementary skill sets and, you know, delegate. And I actually think that, you know, one of the more important things that I've done is not set the tone for myself, but when our former CTO, who was a man, had a child, I encouraged him to take his full parental leave because I think that it's just as important for men to take that time to be with their families, to show that you can be a great dad in addition to being a great employee of Rent the Runway. And that, in fact, one of the things that sets women back on our career journeys is the fact that, you know, it it starts really at the birth of the child, where it's the woman who is taking time off from her career. And if men were equally taking that time off in their organizations, you'd have um, more equivalent levels of women, you know, being promoted, reaching more senior levels of authority within organizations. And I think that, you know, we, we see this great diversion of people's career trajectories kind of by gender really starting in your early thirties. And that's the exact time when women, you know, are, are becoming mothers and having kids. So I think that parental leave is extremely important. It's extremely important for men if we're ever going to have gender equity in the workplace. I could not agree with you more. And it makes me wonder, you know, you are, an exceptionally successful uh, woman who's running an exceptionally successful company. Uh, There aren't that many of you. And I hope to God that when my daughter is entering the workforce, there are a lot more of you so that it's not, um, you know, the, the few shining stars that are there. But as it stands, a lot of the people who are running these companies and setting these policies are men. And for a number of factors, men have not focused on taking their own parental leave or making that a priority for the mothers and fathers who work for them. And so I'm curious in your conversations and your dealings with other people who are running major companies, what the reaction is to your policy. And if you talk to them about their own policies, I'm, I'm just so curious what the conversation uh, at that your level is about making this something that is more broadly available to other employees at big companies like yours? I think that people's willingness to actually take advantage of the benefits that their company offers is based on the culture of that organization. And there are a lot of organizations that on paper have great benefits, but in practice, those benefits are not 
really utilized. And I think parental leave is a great example of one that is often underutilized, especially when you look at some of the most competitive industries in the country when it, you know, technology, finance, law. And I think that this is a conversation that I am often having with female leaders who understand how important it is for men to model the behavior. And I do think it's going to take male C-level executives doing that and modeling that behavior, modeling more more work-life balance, as an example, for corporate culture to change. I mean, if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we have had, as Americans, a really effed up relationship with work for many decades. We are a culture of workaholics in this country where over the past few decades, we spent more and more hours at the office. To what end? Like we've learned during the pandemic that people can be productive from anywhere. You could actually do your job in some cases more efficiently when you're remote, at least for part of the time. And this idea of like the FaceTime of showing up at a certain time in the morning and leaving at a certain time at night is not only like it feels like a dinosaur era idea, but it just, it has led to, I think, a a mental health crisis for decades in this country. And this is all kind of wrapped in one, a conversation around parental leave, a conversation around hours in the office. I mean, why is it that women are so rare in CEO jobs and C-level roles and kind of senior management roles at Fortune 500 companies? Well, women are still doing 85% of the childcare, 85% of the home management. So that means that like, if there's a soccer game after school, who's showing up? It's the woman that leaves the office. Now, in reality, we need to move to a world that if that woman or man wants to show up at the soccer game, that that's fine because we're mobile anyway. And she could do an extra hour of work at 8 p.m. that night after her kids are asleep if she wants to. Of course. She can't be penalized for those choices that she's making to prioritize her family. Of course. And and I think that that is the reason why what you are doing and what you're modeling and the fact that you are considering the human costs along with the actual costs uh, at your company is so important and and the fact that you're being so public about all the things that you're doing and how thoughtful you're being is absolutely essential. You are obviously taking a lead on what can be done on this issue in the private sector, but I'm wondering what you think can be done in the public sector as well. What what in Washington and in state houses across the country should lawmakers and leaders be doing and passing and talking to business leaders like you about in order to take this problem out of just the private sector, out of the boardrooms, out of the C-suites and into the halls where laws are actually passed and decisions can be made on the federal or state or local level? Yeah. 
One of the things I've thought about a lot since we equalized benefits in 2018, and I saw this very positive response from our hourly employees about how some of those enhanced benefits like bereavement leave or parental leave had changed their lives in positive ways. I started getting angry about the fact that I, as an individual leader, had had so much power to either grant those benefits to my employees or not. Like that it was my decision. This shouldn't be a decision that a business leader can make or not make. These should be universal rights for all working people Mm. that the federal government should mandate. The fact that business leaders have the power to determine whether someone will be compensated after having a child and for how long is really crazy. Beyond. And I think that, of course, what I'm doing as a business leader is I'm going with my P&L to various members of Congress and saying, listen, you might think this is expensive. It's not. It is saving me money. Mm. Because the only thing that, you know, a senator or someone in the House needs to make their argument, they've tried to make their argument morally for decades. The moral argument obviously doesn't work. So here's the financial argument that this makes sense and this works. But the fact that we imbue business leaders with this sort of power to decide whether someone gets paid sick leave or whether they have bereavement leave or whether they can have a child and and companies distinguish between, well, women get X number of weeks of parental leave and men only get Y. Like you're creating gender inequity. The business leaders have the power to create gender inequity, to create class inequity, to like further problems that we already have in society. Sure. So- You know, obviously, business leaders have had to step up and do this because the government has been absolutely absent for decades. But, you know, they shouldn't they shouldn't have this power. I should not have this power. And I I really would love to get to a place where there are universal rights for all working people in all sectors at all sizes of, of business. Yeah, I, I, I had this conversation. Um, I talked to Jen Salke for this this podcast, and we were talking about how when women leave the workforce because they can't take time off or their childcare is too expensive or what for whatever million reasons that women have to leave the workforce, the bottom line in their families and the economic costs are so high. And all of those economic costs from individual families added together really impact America's competitiveness. And it really impacts predominantly the lower and middle class of this country. And those are problems that the government is then asked to solve. And so sort of passing the buck off to the private sector on these issues ends up coming back to Washington anyway. Well, can I make one, want to make one kind of crazy argument? Please. So many Republicans in this country still believe in kind of Reaganomics or this kind of trickle-down economics Yes, where if you create wealth at the top, it will somehow trickle down to everyone. Okay. 
I personally don't believe in that, but like, let's just assume for the the purpose of this conversation that that is true. Okay. That we as a country, our goal should be creating wealth at the top so it trickles down. Mm -hmm. Well, we have set ourselves up as a country to fail at that because there is a brain drain on 50% of our talent. That talent is women. Mm. So if you believe that we need to have the smartest people out there in corporate America innovating and making the most money, you've set us back in terms of our chances to do that because women don't have that same opportunity and they could very well be the ones who are innovating and creating jobs and creating wealth. So like no matter how you cut this and no matter how you view economic growth and where it should come from, it is absolutely the wrong financial decision to make to not guarantee our workforce parental leave. Sure. And and paid leave, paid leave in general, because I, I actually just did made a mistake in calling it parental leave because paid leave really covers a whole host of situations that come up throughout your life from illness to, you know, parents taking care of the older generation, taking care of the younger generation. We now know that we're in a time in our workforce where the biggest problems are actually elder care. Absolutely. It's, it is a full family set of issues that don't end when your child goes to school when they're six years old or when they're out of the house at 18. These are are issues that people face at every stage of life multiple times throughout their lives. And these are problems that will not go away and have to be solved. And I think your point that you just made uh, resonates because it's so much of these, these economic theories and these political ideas and policies have excluded women because there haven't been women in Washington and women in the boardroom before now. And there are still so few of them in both of those positions. And I think uh, it is no wonder that people are making an argument for, you know, whether it's trickle down economics or um, things should be happening in the private sector versus the public sector. Those arguments are being made by men. And so of course they're not considering what impact women could have on, on those economic decisions. And the fact that you're out there publicly making these arguments, I think goes a long way. And, and it's why your voice is so valuable here, both as someone who's speaking out about this and someone who's em- employing a large number of people And I thank you for all that you're doing and for coming here today and explaining all this. Keep going. We definitely will. And hopefully this inspires other business leaders to really think through benefits as a part of the full employee experience and the fact that this is both the right choice morally, but it's also the right choice financially. Thank you to my guests, Jen Saki, Alexis Ohanian, and Jen Hyman, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed these conversations, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a really nice review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13, and of course, our great producer, Brett Fuchs, for all their work. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors. Please support them any way you support this podcast. We will see you right here next week.